All right, our first question. Now, not all of you need to answer the question if you feel inclined to or if you feel like you have a, an answer or a burden to answer this question, you're more than welcome to. The question is, can or should Adventists vote for issues and or candidates in office, especially with upcoming election coming along? I think this is a very important question. I will share fundamentals of Christian education. Where is it? About 475 or so that says that we cannot with safety vote for political parties. We must bury political questions. If we elect men to office who repress religious liberty, we are guilty of the sins they commit while in office. There are cautions here. She didn't say don't vote but she did give us some very important cautions. I think that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> Fundamentals of Christian education, am I right? 475? I think that's it. Uh, we cannot with safety vote for political parties. Let us bury political questions. When we elect men to office who repress religious liberty, we are guilty of the sins they commit while in office. The whole chapter is vitally important in that section. I'll uh, add a little bit to that that my mother reminded me the other day, other week. There's some things you talk to your mother about you don't talk to other people about. And um, she reminded me that Ellen White says, when ministers of the gospel get up and participate, these are my words, in partisan politics, they should be removed from the ministry. The Seventh-day Adventist Church needs to stay out of that. We always have supported issues of religious liberty or moral issues, of course, and I'm talking about on the level between man and man, the last six commandments. But we believe that that relationship, that vertical relationship between us and God that the nation should leave that alone. And I don't want to get into how fast I think this nation is abandoning its principles of religious liberty and freedom. Our next question. Some people say that God does not destroy. What is the Bible position of this belief? What is the danger of this belief? Does God destroy or merely remove his presence? The Bible evidence is very clear that God does destroy. It's absolutely clear. It cannot be denied. You have to erase, rewrite whole sections of the Bible. Now, does, the Bible does God destroy arbitrarily? Of course not. The bottom line is we destroy ourselves by our choices, and we bring ourselves out of the place where God can further bless and give us life. And so we make the choice. God only mercifully brings to an end the rebelliousness in certain cases so that worse events don't take place, such as the whole earth and no one left at Noah's time, uh, or other situations in which God brings an end to rebellion so that there will be an option left 
for God's for the victory to be gained. But the evidence is too clear. He does end life. When God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19:24, I believe it is. It says, "Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven." Very direct. God yep. sent that fire. Yep. Uh, Revelation 20 verse 10. And the devil was the, and the Lord, when they compassed the city, God sent fire out of heaven and destroyed them. So God destroys. In Acts chapter. Five, there were a couple, <laughs> two people, Ananias and um, Sapphira, and then, and they lied to the Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. You remember that? Mm -hmm. And when Peter the Apostle confronted them, they dropped dead. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I don't think Peter killed them. No. <laughs> so how did they die? most likely God killed him. So that's to me that's pretty clear. God does kill. Why? Because he is the author of life and he can he's a taker of life. If he doesn't have that power, he cannot be God. If you believe that God creates things but he doesn't really destroy, that's almost like a deism. God makes something and he, you know, hands off policy. I don't think so. I believe that God has the right to take life because he is the author of life. And what is wrong with believing this kind of doctrine? Some people believe this way in order to protect God's character, to make him loving, merciful, that he doesn't really kill. He just withdraws or just lets something happen bad to them, you know, something, happen, you know, something bad happens to them. No, so you're trying to protect God's character, but the problem is this. If your premise is not based upon the Bible, and you may look innocent, you may look beautiful trying to protect God's character, but that wrong premise can lead you to the chain reaction to other erroneous doctrines. So be very careful of these kind of things. In the book of Acts, chapter 5, the whole chapter. Pastor Preby, if sin is only a choice, why do some people die as little babies before they are old enough to make a choice? Because of evil in our world. Evil in our world means that things don't happen the way they should. <clears throat> and therefore, uh, because Satan is the master of the ru and the ruler of this world and God allows him a great deal of freedom, righteous people are killed. Uh, people who have um, uh, made no decision are killed, and babies are killed. All we know, all we know about babies when they die is that they've died the first death. That's all we know. Beyond that is speculation as to what their future will be. But, uh, but simply uh, the, the issue of choice doesn't arise with babies. It isn't an issue. And God will solve those problems in his own way much better than we can by speculating about it. Next question. Is the doctrine of the Trinity supported in the Bible? Mm -hmm. Is the Holy Spirit a third person, or is this a Catholic thing? I don't think that we've heard anything about that this weekend, have we? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, the biblical evidence for the Trinity is very abundant. Um, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're equally divine, co-eternal. It's not a Catholic teaching. It is a biblical teaching. And when you question the Trinity, making one less than God, as the Office of Witnesses make Jesus a God, a little God, then you jeopardize your salvation because every person, the Father, Son, Holy Ghost are involved in salvation and each one has to be fully divine in order to carry out his part in that work. And so the, the Trinity is a biblical teaching if you just study the Bible carefully. It's plain in Scripture. Now, however, Catholic, the way they teach Trinity is not the same way that we teach Trinity. There are many interpretations on that word Trinity. Trinity just simply means triunion. But the way Catholic teaches, I looked it up in uh, Catholic Encyclopedia. It says the Father is unbegotten God. Son is begotten. Eternally begotten. Yeah. The way they but Son it. is a begotten God. And Holy Spirit is a spirit between Father and the Son. I believe this teaching is dangerous. We believe that God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they're all equal. And they have different roles to play. The reason that our pioneers rejected the doctrine of the Trinity was because of the Catholic misstatements about the Trinity. If you read them carefully, it's very metaphysical and very substance and essence oriented. And uh, it, it, is, it is almost impossible to understand and make any sense of. And our pioneers rejected that concept of Trinity. I personally prefer to use the term Godhead. Uh, Trinity does carry some baggage with it, even though it's a legitimate word. Next question. Were we forgiven at the cross or once we asked for forgiveness and is forgiveness simply a removal of guilt? Do you need me to repeat it? Yes. <laughs> Were we forgiven at the cross or once we asked for forgiveness and is forgiveness simply a removal of guilt? multiple questions it seems here I think we have questions on questions yeah. were we forgiven at the cross if we were forgiven at the cross then so was Hitler because what Jesus did on the cross he did for all men and therefore he provided the gift of forgiveness for every human being but if he forgave all men at the cross then all men are automatically entitled to salvation and we're into universalism uh, so the provision was made for all men. That's my understanding for the first. And the second is that forgiveness covers more than removal of guilt. That is its primary function, but forgiveness is also empowerment, and it begins the new creature, the new birth, a walk with Jesus Christ. It is also a making righteous in addition to declaring righteous. Uh, maybe I could just add one little thing to that. Um, and sometimes this can boil down to semantics, and you have to be careful with that. But at the cross, Christ provided. He made it possible for God to legally forgive everybody that wants it. Forgiveness was already in the heart of God, but was not legally provided 
until the cross. And um, the prodigal son is a good example of that. I ask people, when was the son forgiven? And people will say, well, when he came home. Or some people will be bold enough to say, when he left. I'd like to suggest that he was forgiven the day he was born. Because forgiveness is an attribute of God's love and God's mercy. But his justice could not affect that or would not allow that to be affected until an atonement had been provided. And so I say to people, even though the prodigal son was forgiven the day he was born, he could have stayed in the pig pen the rest of his life and never experienced what was provided for him. So we don't have to stay in pig pens. There is forgiveness in the heart of God. And we can go home and get it and experience it. But we do have a choice to play as whether we respond to what God has provided for us. Next question. I believe this is for you, Elder Preby. There was a statement by one of our speakers that said, we will be judged by our works. This doesn't sound right in light of the text that says, by grace are you saved and not of works, lest any man should boast. Are we saved by Christ's righteousness plus works or by the righteousness of Christ alone? Obviously, it's by the righteousness of Christ alone, but it's never without works. We are saved by grace, but judged by works. That's what the Bible teaches, and we're going to have to make some sense of that. We're going to have to try to understand what that means. It is grace unmerited by anything we provide or do that saves us. There is nothing that we can add or make better what Christ has done. Merit is allotted only through Jesus Christ. Merit never applies to anything that we do. But when the faith is there that brings justifying grace, it always works. It is never without work. And the only way that the universe can tell that we have been saved by grace is our works showing that it has happened in our life. And that's why the judgment has to deal with the works that are provided and produced by saving grace. That's what it seems to me. We can put it this way. We are saved by grace through faith. <coughs> However, we will be judged by our works because our works will show the quality of our faith. Next question, and Elder Gallimore, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this one. What is happening at the NAD because evolution and humanism is being taught in our universities, in Loma Linda University? First of all, let me make a few things really clear. My overseership stops at the borders of Michigan. <laughs> uh, and that's a fact. I mean, that's, that's a reality. I do not speak for the North American division. Um, and 
I don't speak for Andrews University either. That's a general conference institution. I do not chair their board. I'm on their board. Um, but having made that clear and not knowing the specifics and wanting to say there are many wonderful things being taught in our schools. Amen. And I praise God for that. Uh, I know some, some of the finest teachers in the world that I've gotten a lot of blessing from. But there are some challenges going on. And so let me just, you can just figure out the rest of it from this comment. And I made this public, so uh, I don't mind saying it again. If you're teaching, and I don't care who it is, I don't care how many doctor's degrees you have behind your name, or don't. Our universities and colleges are confessional universities. That means that we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We confess the authority of Scripture. We confess the inspiration of the spirit of prophecy. We confess 28 fundamental beliefs. So that means that we do not have academic freedom outside of that confession. Therefore, if you're teaching in our schools and you, don't, you cannot support a, a, a seven-day, 24-hour, consecutive day, oh, I got that right, creation, if you believe in theistic evolution and you're teaching that, have enough integrity enough honesty to quit and get your paycheck from a university who has no scruples. But do not ask us to send our kids, our young people, whom we have prayed and sweated and loved in order to have their faith undermined by your lack of faith. Amen. So if you can't support that, Please have enough honesty to leave. Amen. Our next question. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, why is the beast described as having seven heads but ten horns? I think this question requires more than four heads. <laughs> and more than seven hours. I, let me try to guide you to other places. Please compare that carefully with Revelation 12 the dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and also carefully compare that with the beasts in Revelation chapter 17, seven heads and ten horns. And the interpretation of seven heads and ten horns are given in Revelation chapter 17. 
So do your homework. <laughs> I can give you the answers, the ones that I have studied, but without telling you the proper process and the logical sequence, I'm going to give you many heads. And you cannot think properly. So I think it's not wise to just to blur out the answer. So search the scripture carefully. Next question. What are your thoughts on congregationalism? And if one of you can define what congregationalism is. The person who asked the question should define what <laughs> congregationalism is. We need churches that act independently. Uh, what do we think of congregationalism? And I'm suggesting congregationalism practically means churches that act independently. So there's no conference that has control or union. Each church acts independently. Yeah, that's the question I'm waiting for them to answer. <laughs> I hope I'll get some help. First of all, I believe in the Seventh-day Adventist organization. Now, you might say, well, I expect you to say that because of what you do. But I'm a minister of the Seventh-day Adventist church, and I believe our organization was divinely put together. I have real serious concerns about both inside as well as some outside uh, powerful voices that are trying to destructure. I heard at a general conference session, for instance, it was a good general, many, many good voices there. But this was one voice, and if I said the name, you'd be instant recognition. Uh, written a bunch of books, said, you know, we don't need all these layers, we need to get rid of these layers. And, um, and I thought to myself, uh, as I was thinking about it, uh, here's the problem, this person doesn't understand. First of all, your theology gives rise to your mission. And your mission gives rise to your church organization. If you do not believe in Revelation 14, that you have a message to take to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, then go ahead and settle for a congregational mode of church government. You can have some powerful effect. You can keep all the money for yourself. You can look like Saddleback or Willow Creek, maybe, if you have a, a, a pastor that is smart enough and entertaining enough, and, and etc. Um, but you, you cannot have a vision for the world. Let me tell you, there are a lot of denominations and a lot of megachurches that can drool at the mouth when they look at Seventh-day Adventists and what God has done for us. Let me, let me finish by saying that the only way that you can have a world church there's two systems. You can have a pope system, a, mon a religious monarchy, and it works. But it's unbiblical, and as Seventh-day Adventists, we can't accept it. The only other form of church government you can have is a representative form of church government. And you have to have those layers to encompass the world. We have four basic layers. I was just reading that in the church manual. By the way, if you haven't read the church manual, read it. Now you say, what? Yes. 
it is being attacked from every direction, and it's what holds our church together. And you'll find it not to be so boring. It's very powerful stuff. Since we have four layers of, of church government, local church, conference, union, which the unions are the building blocks of the general conference, and the general conference. The divisions are a part of the general conference. You have to have those four layers in order to take Revelation 14 to the ends of the earth. The devil is very shrewd if he cannot get us to abandon our position of Revelation 14. He just attacks the structure of the church. And if you collapse the structure of the church for all practical reasons, you've done in the mission of the church. So we need to quit carping. Now that doesn't mean we can't we can't tweak things, but we need to quit carping and arguing about collapsing our divine, in my estimation, given to us um, structure of church government that spreads decision-making all across to many minds. And um, Jesus has given us, and it's the only way we'll ever keep unity in the world. They've just finished a commission at the general. Oh, they're still working on it. I'm on one. I'm on the Tide Commission. There's another commission on church structure. And it came out of North America, basically, and certain other Western uh, um, divisions. And the whole idea behind it is we need to collapse some of this structure. We collapse it. If the devil gets, pulls that off, and I don't think that's going to happen, but if he is able to pull that off, the, the ability to carry out Revelation 14 is finished. We clearly had the option in the beginning of our church uh, development to go into the congregational way. There were many who, who wanted to go that way. And we had clear guidance from the spirit of prophecy that this was not the way God designed for his church to be. And I don't think we need to uh, abandon that. Next question. How do we reconcile the just nature of God in the Old Testament and the merciful revelation of God through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It seems as though in the Old Testament it's uh, you, you hit someone and you, know, you hit someone back and then in the New Testament it's you turn the other cheek. So how do we, how do we justify the difference it seems in the Old and New Testament? First point, the same one in the New Testament who is the loving Jesus is the same one in the Old Testament who is Yahweh. Whatever we're going to say about Yahweh, we're saying about Jesus Christ because they are one and the same. And so we can't answer it by saying the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. That's a cop-out. Mm -hmm. So what we have to address is does God act in certain ways that are not his chosen ways to move his ignorant people in the hardness of their hearts to a better way in which he can say, in the old days we did this, but now I say unto you, this is the way I want you to be. I think that we, we do believe in progressive acts of God in revealing his will, and sometimes God allows what he does not like and sometimes even what he hates, and he regulates it. That's part of the answer, not all of it. Next question. This is written by a five-year-old. How does Jesus change my heart? Is that person present? I love that question. How does Jesus change the heart? Is that little girl or boy here? Where? 
Ah, God bless you, my little sister. That's an angel that has no wings. You'll get yours when you get to heaven. Jesus changes your heart when you give it to him. You just give your heart to Jesus. You say, Jesus, here's my heart. Change it. And he changes it through the work of his Holy Spirit. That's how he changes it for you. That's how he changes us for the grown-ups. And it's easier for you than for the grown-ups. So God bless you for giving your heart to Jesus. It is his work to change it once you give it to him. This is a, an important announcement real quick. We want to make sure this person can go home. Someone left their lights on on a dark blue Volkswagen Golf. It's by the horseshoe area. So we want to make sure you can get home. Next question. Are the seven plagues literal or symbolic? Literal. <laughs> well, you get to uh, the drying up of the river Euphrates, and that's a little different. But the others are literal. The sun will literally scorch you. There will be a sore, grievous, and, and noisome. The, first, the, the, the seas will turn to blood. The rivers will turn to blood. Darkness on the seat of the beast. Uh, hail from heaven plague them. It, they are literal, but the drying up of the river Euphrates, that has a spiritual symbolic interpretation. And also the frogs that comes out of that's the mouth right. of dragon and the beast and the false prophet, I believe that's symbolic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hope it's symbolic. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Next question. This sounds like one that some of us can relate to. One of our pastors preached a four-part series based on the songs of the Beatles. The one sermon I went to, they played Let It Be, which is a song that quotes Mother Mary saying, Let It Be. I want to do something about this. What should I do? Well, I'm not a conference president, but let me try. The Bible says if your brother offends you, talk to him. It says rebuke him, but I, I, let me say talk to him because we misunderstand rebuke. You just go to your pastor, having prayed first, searching your own heart, recognizing that's God's son as far as you know, and you let him know where you were probably spiritually hurt and others who might have been damaged by the, uh, the message, understanding he had good intentions, but you know, the road to hell, how it's paved. And so you talk to him about that non-judgmentally but with concern for the effect it may have had on the congregation and then see what he says if you think the effect is catastrophic enough on the church then uh, you may need to go perhaps another step but even before you speak to him personally it might be better to speak to the elders who represent the church because the pastor is a, an agent of the conference I guess uh, officially but you know, we're all one family and let the elders talk to your pastor about this method of sermon presentation. The question still remains, and I think our, our question is, what happens if all of that fails? And that is the tough question, isn't it? What happens if those seem to be dead ends? We have done our best. We have tried to uh, communicate in the way the scripture asks. Then where do we go from there? I get asked that question more than any other single question in the meetings I go to around the United States. What do we do? I'd like to urge us, pray for your pastors. 
the pastors are under tremendous attack by the enemy. Satan knows if he gets a leader, he gets the people. You smite the shepherd and what happened to the sheep? They're scattered. So we must pray. And I have some reservations about people who want to challenge pastors who don't pray for them. Pray for your leaders. I mean, the pastors, the conference presidents, the union presidents, they are under tremendous attack by the enemy. Because if you hit the head, the head falls, the whole structure falls. So pray for them. Pray for them. It's amazing what God will do in answer to your prayers. Pray for the leaders of the church. I really mean that. I mean, from Jan Paulson down to the most, the lowliest uh, administrator somewhere in the jungles of, of, of Zaire, uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Pray for them. I mean that with all my heart. Because they need it. They're human beings. Next question. Will I be lost if I join, don't join the Seventh-day Adventist church? Even if I believe everything it teaches and live it out in my life? Yes. Yes. Now, now, let me explain that yes. You were lost for disobeying, not living up to the truth revealed to you. God holds us accountable for the light we have. He does not hold us accountable. You know, L.O.I. says in uh, Last Day Events, page 217, paragraph 5, none will be condemned for not heeding light and knowledge they never had and they could not obtain. Now, if you have that light and turn your back on it, you are condemned for it. And if we really do believe that this is the right message and we are living up to the standards that it upholds, why wouldn't we want to be part of a movement that we support and why wouldn't we want to be part of a group that will go forward with this message? Why would we want to keep ourselves separate? And the reason why you might want to, I mean, you believe everything, why don't you join the church? Right? Maybe the reason you're not joining the church because uh, there's somebody in the church that you don't like. So because you don't like that person, you grudge and you have bitter feeling and you go to hell because of bitter feelings. <laughs> so it's not a good idea. Well, I, I would just like to add, since we're all four answering this one, uh, if, it, if it's his church, if he established it, and you believe that and know that to be true, and God calls people into this, why rebel against the Lord? Don't rebel against him. If he calls you, accept it by faith. And it's, it's not a perfect church. Um, somebody told a story one time about a little dove in Noah's Ark and a hawk. And the hawk kept edging toward the dove and said, I'm going to eat you. And somebody said to the dove, that hawk's not going to eat you. Noah's not going to let it eat you. And that hawk kept edging toward the little dove saying, I'm, I'm going to eat you. And some said to that little dove, you better fly out of here. And then some said, there's a storm outside. And Noah's not going to let that hawk eat you. There are troubles sometimes in the church. But it's God's. It's his ship. Sometimes it's a little smelly inside. But it's his. And he'll bring the old gospel ship into the harbor at last. I just want to be on board. That's right. Next question. 
How would you explain the 144,000? They're probably asking if this is literal or symbolic. No. <laughs> How would you explain the 144? We can only explain what we are given. And what we are given is that it is a special group which are called to, be, to do a special work at the end of time that no other group has ever been called in the history of this earth to do, to finally vindicate God's name by being a part of it. We are told that everyone who wants to be a part of the 144,000 can be, and that we must strive with all our hearts to be part of that movement. That's what we know about the 144,000, and that's enough. Well, I know some things, but the one thing is just to emphasize that I'm praying to be part of it. I'd like to be part of it. Next question. This is a one that's very relevant for this present time we live in. How will we know when to leave our houses and move to the mountains? I think we have advice from Ellen White. We need to study that. I think we need to be careful about somebody else standing up and telling us that. We ought to be able to walk with God and to know when we need to make changes. Uh, and those changes will not be for everybody at the same identical time. There are cities to warn. There are principles there's the benefits of country living, but we are moving also through time when there's going to be a little time of trouble, and then there's going to be the great time of trouble. And once you get to the great time of trouble, no country living or garden is going to help you much. It's going to be the inside of a jail uh, or worse. So I think that we need to take the counsel, and we need to pray and say, God, be my teacher and my helper and help me to discern the times in which I am living. Our last question is a question I think we all have. It's a personal question I have for each one of you. And I want to start with Peter, down all the way to Elder Preby. I was at GYC 2003, and I believe I talked to Elder Preby about this, that there has been a movement among young people in this generation that probably hasn't been seen before, but I'd like to get your thoughts on this. With the recent movements of GYC, of all the conferences being set up, of a primitive godliness being set up in the young people, do you believe with all your heart that this generation, the people you're looking at, the people who are here, that we actually can finish the work in this generation? If we can exercise faith that is required to live in these last days. If we can fit the description of here are the patients of saints, here are they that keep the commitments of God and faith of Jesus, yes, is possible if we let God works in us. No, I thought it was just for him. 
Um, if we follow Christ's uh, counsel in Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I believe if we would search our hearts, as I suggested sometime today, God's work is not first. We spend a lot of time watching what the Pope is doing or what uh, uh, the Illuminati is doing and what, um, and uh, who else? And the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, what they're doing. But if you read the Bible carefully, God is waiting not for the Illuminati or for the Council on Foreign Relations or for the Los Angeles Lakers. God is waiting for what his people are required to do. When the gospel is preached, he comes. You read uh, Mark 4, 28, but when the harvest has come, immediately he put it from the sickle. What brings the harvest? The, the, the messages of Revelation 14, 6 through 12. So we, if we took that with earnest and deadly seriousness and made the necessary sacrifices, we could finish this thing quickly. If you read Colossians 1.23, Paul states that the gospel was preached to every creature under heaven in his day. But that was a localized fulfillment because he didn't know there was a place called Japan or Brazil or China. But now it has to be truly a global fulfillment of that localized fulfillment. We can. You know, we spend a lot of time how to reach the Buddhists. And that's one of the things that bothered me. How to reach the Buddhists, how to reach the Hindu, how to reach, you know, how to reach these people. That's not God's problem. Because God's problem, he didn't have a problem at Pentecost. The disciples had it. Language. God solved it when they put aside all the petty divisions and they, and they took care of that. Then God solved how to reach all these languages. He solved that. And he can solve the problem how to reach the postmodern, how to reach the Hindu, how to reach the Buddhist. That's his problem. What we need to do is let God know how to reach us. When God reaches us through our permission, then we will see God do things that will just amaze us. Because the gospel is God's work. We are his assistants. But we need to be 100% committed. And, and many of us are not. We're nice to God. We're courteous to God. But we don't have that obedient unto death, even the death of the cross that Jesus Christ had. I don't, I don't know if I can add a lot to that. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's one of the most serious questions of our day. I mean, you're young, but in a few short years, you'll look like the rest of us. The rest of us didn't include Peter. <laughs> uh, you know, when I was 10, I thought the world was moving at the pace of a turtle. By the time I got to 16, I was on a bicycle. By the time I, I hit uh, 30, I was on a car in a car. You hit 40. You're in a jet, you hit 50 on a space shuttle. And uh, I think it's warping at the speed of light right now. 
most of you don't take serious enough Moses' admonition to number your days. Seems like yesterday we were holding our babies in our arms. I'd really rather not retire. It's not close, close, but you start to begin to see it. I'd like to see Jesus come in my lifetime. As Paul Ratsara says, I'd, I'd really not, not take the underground express. I'd like to see him. come from the top side but I'll tell you what we're going to be here another thousand years if we keep doing what we're doing that's why that's one of the most serious questions book education says the noblest the noblest goal and aim for young people in this generation we should be passing it on to you is to see the gospel finished in this generation now, it's already been alluded to what it's going to take. The question is, is you're willing to pay the price? I'm telling you that there's going to be a generation that will pay the price. There will be. If you're willing to pay it, we can hasten the coming of Jesus. And I'm one of those old guys that believes that. I, already, I believe God sent a limit, wouldn't going to go any further, but there have been mighty men and women of faith that have already upped that. It's closer than it would have been already. And we can add to that. But the question is, is what are you going to do? You can't make a decision for your friends. But you can make a decision for you. And if you really believe with all your heart, with all your soul, that Jesus has called you to give your life without reserve to him. And you're willing to do that on a daily basis. I told worker force not long ago, I said, I don't have a future. I do not have a future unless Jesus gives me one. I've got to be willing to lay the future tomorrow in his hands and not gripe and complain. I know the world presents a very pretty picture about life, but inside that picture and that package is death and sorrow and regret. The question is, am I willing to pay the price in surrender, am I willing to pay the price in prayer? We'll talk about that tomorrow morning. Before this is done, it's going to cost us everything. But I believe it'll be worth it. Amen. You've probably asked the most important question that we can think about it as we finish up this evening. It is hard for me to realize that of this group sitting up here, I am now the oldest of the group. That seems impossible for me to, com to comprehend. I began doing this work of going around the country, meetings in churches, thinking I might do it for four or five years at most. And here it is 23 years that we have been doing exactly this in churches and schools around the country. 
I have been observing, obviously, this church for a good, good many years. I think there was not much going on in the church when I was growing up other than caretaking, taking care of business, raising our signs goals, raising our in-gathering goals, doing the work of the church, nominating committees, and on and on. And it was good work, but it seemed to me like a lot of wheels turning without much significant forward progress. And then as we moved into the era of uh, attacks upon the spirit of prophecy and upon our doctrinal beliefs, and particularly in the Desmond Ford era, um, I began to wonder what would happen to this church. Would it split wide apart? Would there be any future to the church? And all of a sudden I saw that there was a response on the part of people saying, no, we're not going that way. We're not going to let this church go down the drain. It is not going to disappear into nothingness. But again, even after that time, it seemed to be that there was just a few voices, a few people here and there in churches around the country that, uh, that I would come across that were on fire for the Lord and willing to put everything on the line for Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, it seemed to me, in the mid-90s, something began to happen, which you are expressions of at this meeting. That wasn't happening 20 years ago. A meeting like this wasn't happening. Yes, we had youth rallies. Yes, we had youth congresses, but not like this. Not like this. And this just wasn't in existence. And a number of us were saying, where will our young people be coming from that will carry the torch of the final generation as the mighty army that will go forth to victory? Is it ever going to be seen? And I began to wonder and even to doubt a little bit. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, seemingly, and the only answer can be is that the Holy Spirit is much more of a guider than any of us can ever guess. And the Holy Spirit has plans that none of us know about. And when he can take ages 17 to 37, turn them on fire for the Lord when they haven't all been hearing that from their mentors and teachers, and get them to be interested in two things, what is truth and how can I share it? and nothing else matters. That seemed to me a miracle of the Lord. And as I watched this group form and develop, I began to say there's a possibility that this really could be the final generation and that we might see the fulfillment of the promises. And I have been more enthusiastic about this than anything in my entire lifetime of 40 years in the Adventist ministry. Now, with that said, can you ever believe that Satan, he knows better than any of us know what this could possibly mean for his future on this planet? He knows. And can you ever believe that he would leave a movement like this alone? That he would say, yeah, let's just watch it happen. Let's just see it develop. Let's see it sweep the continent and then sweep the world. Let's let it go. You know, you know that he's not going to allow that to happen. He will do everything he can to shake apart, split apart, divide this movement. And you know his best opportunity to do that? His best opportunity to split this movement apart is over getting us arguing about how one is saved and the gospel of Jesus Christ and what that means for a final generation. And he's trying to do that right now within this movement. We had better be on our knees, my friends, praying that this movement will not split apart over the issues of righteousness by faith. 
We won't split apart over the Sabbath. We won't split apart over the interpretation of prophecy. We might have some differences. We won't split over that. We won't split over the doctrines of the church, but we can well split over how one is saved and what that means in justification and sanctification and perfection. And Satan is going to do everything he can to drive a wedge deep into this movement. It is a very real issue right now. Let us be on our knees. Let us be praying that, first of all, we will understand what the gospel is all about, that we will not go down hybrid paths of, org of, of putting together what God has never joined together, that we will not walk into a counterfeit righteousness by faith in the most glorious youth movement that God has ever called into existence in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Let us be sure that we know what it means to be saved and how God saves us and then be on our knees praying that Satan will not be able to destroy this movement because if he does, and if he does bring this movement down to squabbling and arguing and, and division, we, do, we, and I mean you, who are just a little bit younger than some of us, we all go down to our graves and hope that another generation can get it right. And I don't want to see that happen. I think this is the best hope of Seventh-day Adventism. So I'm going to ask that we get really serious, really serious about studying the Word of God for ourselves and know what we believe because we have studied it and because we believe in it with all our hearts. And then pray that we can come together in unity. Pray that we can settle our differences. There are real differences. Pray that we can get on our knees in fellowship with, uh, with brothers and sisters who might see things in a different way and settle them as the disciples did before the day of Pentecost. They've got to be settled. They can't be left as cancerous sores eating from inside. And so we have got to be more serious. Now the challenge is on you as the younger people of this church to make that happen. We can't do it from the top down. This has never been a top-down movement. This has been an up-from-the-grassroots movement. And it must continue that way. And it must be, be developing in that way. So all I want to say is for the benefit of maybe a couple of us, we don't have a lot of years left. If we don't get this thing done soon, we, we take the Underground Express. <laughs> and I'd like to see this movement done quickly, and it can be done very quickly. So let's be really serious about being Seventh-day Adventist young men and women. With that, Elder Preby, can you close us with prayer? Father in heaven. I just pray that your Holy Spirit will rest upon every heart here tonight. That no one may see himself or herself just a spectator watching to see how speakers perform. Oh Lord, I pray that everything that is said here from the pulpit may only be for the purpose of inspiring and lighting a fire that can never be put out again by Satan's hosts. And I pray that we individually may dig deeper than we have ever dug before in understanding what it means to be Seventh-day Adventist, that we have a unique and special message that no one else has been given to give to the world, and that every one of us may ask only two questions, what is truth and how can I share it? Oh, Lord, help us to make that our only goal, our only purpose. 
And I pray, Lord, that the devil will be totally stymied and will fail in his efforts to split us apart. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Thank you very much. We'll be starting our evening program as soon as possible. We went over a little bit of time, but I'm sure each one of you has enjoyed this session. I surely have. And so I ask each one of you to, especially those outside, quickly find your seats, and we'll begin shortly.